This podcast is number 89 and is entitled Sequels. I would like to talk about some famous or not so famous yet successful sequels and what the hit or miss, or rather shall I say the occasional mammoth success and innovation of a sequel has to tell us about, well, Christian preaching. And I might even put it more dramatically, the fortunes of Christianity in past and present, as understood through the study of sequels. And when I do these podcasts, I have decided to major on spontaneity and immediate uh, sense of of, uh, the muse uh, slash, quote, inspiration. Who can ever say whether he or she is inspired? But the sense of being drawn to speak on a subject. That is the the uh, the, the governing uh, motive, being drawn to speak such that I c- cannot not speak about it, and then I do it. Rather than um, spending a tremendous amount of time working up a text, I feel drawn, and when the draw is such that I can't resist, I do it. But you may say, well, golly, he's, he's somebody wrote the other day and said, you've just dropped a three-pack, which is a great way of saying you've just put three down one week as opposed to one, which was the original way. And I understand that, but uh, what happens is I'm occasionally hit with these moments when the subject just uh, becomes very bright and I'm required to speak about it. And yet it may be uh, afterwards that I go through a period of of, of uh, not feeling this way at all and just don't want to have a word to say. Someone said recently, you know, um, uh, you may have said all you need to say. And that is also true. There are times when the uh, sense of being involved in creation simply leaves you and you drop it. This can actually happen for years uh, with someone and can certainly happen uh, with myself as I look at my own attempts to try to speak. But nevertheless, the idea here has come with such um, marvelous immediacy, the word on sequels, and it's an area of sequels which, in fact, I um, have worked up over the years, and this is a subject I've thought about again for about 50 years, and now I apply it to the fortunes pro or con, and in today's age, essentially con, that is to say, the down fortunes of the Christian church, with a little bit of hope, I believe, for what people who care about the affirmations of the New Testament might wish to um, study for the current moment in 2012. Well, now, let's talk about sequels. I've said before, and I think everyone here knows, that uh, Frankenstein, the universal classic of 1931, was succeeded four or five years later by its greater son. What do we say in the hymn? Great David's greater son. Uh, Frankenstein was a terrific film from 1931, but Bride of Frankenstein is better. And it's always been a source of joy and some puzzlement that Bride of Frankenstein, the sequel from 1935, is a more artistic, more delightful, and more lasting picture of um, a fairy tale, a gothic fairy tale, than the original Frankenstein. And that's just a fact. 
And there were several other sequels in this great series, because when I'm talking about sequels, what do you think I'm talking about? I'm talking about universal horror movies, because they are a perfect Petri dish in which the way that sequels operate in human life and expression can be exposed and um, looked at closely, because when you see the great David's greater son overwhelming the power of the original, you say to yourself, well, isn't that interesting that the, the idea of Dr. Frankenstein and his great creation came to a deeper and more wondrous magical expression five years later than it did in the original? We'll go back to that. Some people say, <clears throat> including my friend Bill Bowman, that son of Frankenstein, if you exempt Bride, that son of Frankenstein may be the great sequel to the original, if you exempt Pride, which is a, a very important if. I personally have always thought that Ghost of Frankenstein from 1941 with Lon Chaney Jr. and Evelyn Ankers and Sir Cedric Hardwick was really the uh, was really the great magical sequel with its uh, tremendous opening, ten minutes of the finding of the monster in the saltpeter, and then the blowing up of the castle and the uh, reanimation of uh, the monster with Bela Lugosi's help as Igor through the lightning. Uh, others look upon House of Frankenstein with affection, although it, it simply isn't as good. But who cares? The point is, I care in that these are examples of movies that in one case were better than the original and in other cases were interesting and successful, that is to say, narratively and artistically successful sequels to the original. Now, remember, hold in your mind the notion of a great idea and what it means to be succeeded by other hands handling the same great idea successfully. Hold in your hands the whole uh, notion of a uh, of, 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 a, of a great idea as it is passed down through the continuity of what is sometimes called, and something I don't actually believe in in any organic or material sense, the apostolic succession. Now let's look at Dracula for a minute. Dracula itself is a very wooden and stagey movie, despite all its great and, quote, iconic strengths. <clears throat> One other movie eclipses it in its power, and it's the third, I think, of the uh, of the sequels, or the second of the sequels after Daughter of, is Son of Dracula, also in the early 40s with Lon Chaney as Count Alucard. And for all its uh, odd and silly um, childish work with the alphabet and uh, the strange casting of Lon Chaney Jr. as the nefarious count, it is a very successful film. It, it, is, it brings a whole new bearing of a kind of deep morbidity on the part of the uh, heroine and a kind of surprising sacrifice on the behalf of the, her lover at the end, which involves her own death and um, a continuity with all the great Christian symbols yet beautifully photographed uh, in the so-called bayous. And uh, Son of Dracula has some great touches. Now, for someone like myself, House of Dracula, or House as we used to call it, not to be confused with House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula from 1945 is, uh, is marvelous for all sorts of reasons because it has about six amazing little bits and um, a very surprising and uh, touching ending in which Lawrence Talbot, the werewolf, is healed. Now, uh, nevertheless, isn't this interesting that in the light of the original 1931 movie, 
Dracula, you have a bang-up sequel to it. Ten years later, Son of Dracula, with the same conceit and background narrative. And then you have a fascinating exploration in, in a very religious way, as it turns out, in House of Dracula, that is also uh, memorable and striking. Now, let's talk about a few more sequels. Let's uh, talk for just a minute about The Mummy. I've already discussed The Mummy, so you'll know if you're following these things that The Mummy's Ghost uh, is a personal favorite of mine, although many people will say, with, I think, justice, that The Mummy's Hand from 1941 with Tom Tyler is very exciting, very successful and exciting. Richard Hallowell, the English film historian, always goes back to that. A moment of seeing in a, some kind of a suburban London cinema when it first came out, the original, um, I think, Mummy's Hand, and this made a tremendous impact on him, and I understand that. Uh, what is interesting here is that with the rather wooden but bizarre and extremely beautiful and mystical film, The Mummy from 1932, we should have in uh, 1941 a very good sequel with all the same basic characters and ideas, but carried much further with a lot of exterior action and a very great and haunting climax. And for me, The Mummy's Ghost clocking in at 61 minutes with all these deep, understood, macabre feelings about love uh, and um, gravitations to the negative, and yet on the other hand, uh, the... um, tremendous uh, power of the archetype. Uh, Mummy's Ghost is also a universal work of popular art, but the point is the sequel. The sequel, 10 years after, 15 years after, which still works, and then they sort of stop for all sorts of other reasons after the Second World War. Now, there's another case of this. You can't really find it in the case of The Wolfman, which is a fabulous movie, the 1941 Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. and Claude Rains. There is not really a successful sequel to that, in my opinion, although there are sequels. But in The Invisible Man, which some people regard as the greatest of them all from a purely artistic slash humorous, slightly quixotic and very unusual take on Orson Welles' story with a tremendous amount of black humor that also functions, and very beautiful visuals directed by James Whale in 1933, I think, maybe 34. Uh, But uh, The Invisible Man had a marvelous sequel. Only about eight years later, The Invisible Man, same studio, same names of the people, same basic. It was a genuine uh, bona fide sequel to uh, The Invisible Man called The Invisible Man Returns, directed by Joe May, who I believe was a German. And uh, The Invisible Man Returns is fabulous. It's beautifully shot. It has one long, long section with Alan Napier in the country, which is uh, which a sort of murderer who's drunken himself into oblivion, an accomplice, is confronted by The Invisible Man. And it goes on way too long, and you sort of want to, oh, skip this. But if you can get beyond that, that middle section, which lasts about 10 minutes, you have um, a movie which from directorially, pictorially, graphically, special effects-wise, the acting, the premise, and the fundamental, very deep and very beautiful, if I may say, Eucharistic conclusion. And I don't think that's going too far in the script. There is a very strong blood reanimating in a positive sense, the blood of love reanimating the falsely accused uh, and uh, terribly wayward, lost, compelled, angry hero who is in fact saved by the blood of his true love 
and also justified. The Invisible Man Returns works at almost every level except that section. Now, isn't that amazing? Now, that, that here we have Frankenstein, Dracula, The Mummy, and The Invisible Man, all with drop-dead sequels. Now, let's think, uh, I, I know you may say, I, you know, I'm really not interested in all this stuff. I really am not that interested. I sort of get something occasionally out of the kind of boundary crossing of these podcasts, but I'm just not that. Don't get me all focused on a body material I don't really care about. And you're entitled. I, I fully I'm concede that. This is a body material that I personally am very connected with. And I, I know it at, at several different levels. I've just had to because it's been part of my life since I was a little boy. And I've had a chance to, to study it at several different levels of development. You know, what is it? The four stages, how many stages, Piaget of educational development. And one thing I can say without any question is that sequels have actually succeeded in the case of Frankenstein, Dracula, the mummy, and the invisible man. The same, by the way, goes, as my friend Lloyd Fonville pointed out in a very cogent and wonderful post on, uh, www.mardecortezbaja.com, M-A-R-D-E-C-O-R-T-E-S-B-A-J-A, as in the Sea of Cortez, Baja, California, mardecortezbaja.com. He pointed out that the sequel to The Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is called The Revenge of the Creature, is a, is a kind of work of massive popular art, and I agree with Lloyd completely. I've always felt that that movie which, unlike the first, I've personally never seen in 3D, and I'm, I, I'm very sad about that. I, I hope somewhere in life that that will be rectified, but I, there's not that much time. But um, The Revenge of the Creature has all sorts of subliminal messages that are deeper and finer and better than Creature from the Black Lagoon. And not long ago, Mary and I took a pilgrimage to Wakala Springs, where the original Creature from the Black Lagoon was filmed, not The Revenge of the Creature. And The Revenge of the Creature is a really... Um, exciting and deep and complex and, um, as they say today, stunning and amazing um, avant-garde surrealist sequel that works, and it's much better than the third. So you see one after another after another. Now, the point is, you, you can think of, uh, you know, you'll think of Halloween, the, that franchise, or Jason and Freddy, you know, you'll think about Jason, you'll think about Freddy, you'll think about the Terminator, <clears throat> Aliens, you know, Alien uh, had a, was a great film, but Aliens is also a great film. You can go on about this, but I really do want you to think about sequels, and I want to think about sequels first in uh, preaching, of all things, or communication, because preaching is just a particular form of communication that I've had to really work with and think about over the years. And then I'd like to talk about sequels in life and sequels in your own life and what the power and purpose of a sequel can be. Because these movies, Ghost of Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, Son of Dracula, The Mummy's Hand, and The Invisible Man Returns. These are not my favorite sequels, but these are the ones that, in fact, have more quality and, in some cases, highly superior quality. How can it be? What's going on there with a with a, with an idea that is then taken? Well, let's let's talk about that in just a minute. But first, so you can see where this is going, let's think about uh, preaching. Uh, the idea of a sequel is very brilliantly stated in Thornton Wilder's script, which I think was worked on. But this is a classic Thornton Wilder line in Alfred Hitchcock's 1941, and really wonderful movie, Shadow of a Doubt, in which. 
the uh, the family of whom Teresa Wright is the daughter, who's so involved with her uncle Charlie, who's the Mary Widow murderer, as we know from the very beginning. This is Thornton Wilder's screenplay of a very fabulous and well-made and memorable Alfred Hitchcock thriller, Shadow of a Doubt. They return from church because they're all church-going, lovely, we would call them middle-class American people in the era of World War II. And they return from church, and Uncle Charlie, who is a sadistic murderer, or at least a murderer, let's not call him a sadist, he's a murderer, he greets them because he has no desire to go to church. He has absolutely nothing but contempt for Christianity uh, for all sorts of reasons. But as they come back, he um, addresses the father of the uh, family as they're returning from their church. And he says, well, he said, uh, how was it this morning? Uh, uh, it's had a pretty long run, hasn't it? How was the house? Um, pretty long run. I just, I just wonder if it can keep up the house. Well, he's seeing there, and that sounds like a wilder line. I don't know if it is, but it certainly sounds like a wilder funnyism that has a touch with Christianity. The show's been going for 2,000 years, or at least for... 1940 years when that was written that's a pretty long time for the show how's how is how's the house how's the attendance holding up and the notion here is that the attendance is perhaps suffering just a little bit now whether that's true uh, in that era it, it wasn't really suffering in fact it was getting ready to have a shot in the arm after the great shock of uh, world war ii and for this country but um it's a great line. How's it holding up? And I think you do very well if you're listening to me and you have an interest in Christianity and the significance of the Christian worldview, especially out of the New Testament, the significance of grace, love, and hope. I think you might think a little bit about this because uh, um, really, if you look at Christianity in light of what I've said about sequels and about uh, Son of Frankenstein, Son of Dracula, The Mummy's Hand, and The Invisible Man Returns, which view is clearly stated by Thornton Wilder, a.k.a. Alfred Hitchcock, in Shadow of a Doubt, you'll say, how are the sequels going? I mean, let's say you go to church, or let's say you're part of the church. Let's say you just think about it. You don't have to be a churchgoer to like this. Matter of fact, I often hope that I'm reaching people who are not churchgoers, but might conceivably be interested in in Invisible Man movies. Uh, But Look at just the history of ideas. Uh, how do these great ideas, how do they hold? They hold. What, what keeps them fresh? What keeps an idea fresh? Well, um, you see the connection because if, uh, if a great idea is not fresh, as you can see in bad sequels, then uh, the, the market will fail. People won't go. As I said the other day, the market will tell you where you are, just like your body never lies. If you're under stress, your body never lies. You'll always have a bodily symptom, even if you're Winston Churchill, even if you're some terrifically non-neurotic leader. It, it will come out in your body through the, your hair will turn white. You'll get a tick. You'll you'll be like William Buckley. You'll... you'll uh, You'll fall in the middle of the night. You'll uh, you'll have some kind of ache in some part of your body. Something will will your hair will fall out. I was uh, um, getting something for dandruff years ago in Scarborough, and uh, the very nice uh, doc who was the very nice pharmacist who knew me, and uh, he was not of the Christian faith, but he 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 liked uh, whatever he thought Saint Mary Scarborough was. He at least he liked Mary and me, and uh, he looked at me with tremendous uh, kind of a, a strange sort of avuncular affection. I was a very young clergyman. 
and I was having to get a prescription medication for really bad dandruff. And, um, and he said, was it sebiosis or something like that? And he, he looked at me and said, he said, Paul, are you, uh, are, are you under a lot of stress right now? Is there stress in this church? Are you, are they giving you a lot of grief up there, uh, you know, up on the hill? Is, 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 to tell me, because whenever people buy this particular product from me, cream, they are inevitably under some form of stress. Well, boy, oh boy, I went home and talked to Mary about that one. Um, your body never lies. Uh, dogs never lie. They can always identify their true owner and also interlopers, those who are not their true master. Uh, you see that, and by the way, in all the Invisible Man movies, which are very, use dogs constantly as kind of revealing that there's an invisible interloper on the premises. Your body doesn't lie, your dog doesn't lie, your hair doesn't lie, you don't lie. Ultimately, even if you lie, something else doesn't. And uh, so these uh, sequels don't lie. They say something that is important. And when the Christian church begins to, to begin to decrease and begins to diminish its, its life and its vibrancy, you know instantaneously or it becomes to be connected in people's minds with a kind of mindset or a, an approach to life or values, uh, which much of this is the imposition of people who aren't part of the Christian movement upon the Christian movement. But it is always true when anything begins to reify. It is clear that the sequel isn't going very well, which Uncle Charlie in Shadow of a Doubt lanced so well. Well, um, think about this then. What made Bride of Frankenstein so great? Well, you had a brilliant director. You had a great cast. But I think what you did, and you had a brilliant and fabulous idea, and then you added to it the sexual dimension, that is to say, male, female. You added something human to what was already very imposing and impressive notion of a man bringing life to a dead body, which in itself is a great idea. So let's look at that and remember that, that you had a great idea with great creative talents, but you added to it something that made it even more universal, which is the character of the Bride of Frankenstein with the son of uh, Dracula. You add the whole notion of the female morbidity. You add the, you know, the everybody I know, the young girls that I know when I, at churches, you can always see it when the parents are struggling with their 22-year-old daughter who's away at the, you know, Savannah School of Savannah Arts and Design, SCAD, isn't it? SCAD, or if they're uh, doing some degree at Parsons or Providence, inevitably the uh, toenails and the fingernails are painted black. You don't have to go to SCAD to be part of that world. Um, and uh, But there's something very important going on when anybody starts to wear black. And that insight, which has a little bit to do with suicidal depression, finally, is is brought to the fore in Son of Dracula, which is the, the great uh, sequel to the original Dracula. So you're taking a great idea, the living dead vampire who sucks the blood of the living, Nosferatu, and you take that and you apply, you, you deepen it with the gravitation, the libidinal gravitation of Louise Albritton's character in Son of Dracula. So you take a great idea and you deepen it. You give it a broader appeal. Similarly with the mummy's hand. You, instead of the mummy in a just an old man, albeit very well made up, Boris Karloff in 1932, you have a shambling mummy who is walking around the night uh, kidnapping the beautiful heroine, and yet 
always being chased by the good guy who can't quite figure it out. You bring all that wonderful ancient Egyptian occult material, and then you add to it a, a, a shambling, a very well-created figure with blazing eyes, and you, you've deepened and broadened the original conceit, which was the living mummy. It comes to life, which is what the original 1932 posters of the mummy claimed, but it really comes to life. And finally, with The Invisible Man Returns, you you bring in the element of romance more deeply, although it was there before. You expand the whole question of the Invisible Man going crazy, which happens in the original Invisible Man, but you have a touching, you, you the, the whole notion of the woman who loves the Invisible Man is going crazy while invisible under the influence of the drug. <clears throat> you Give to him uh, and to her, uh, you give to her love a depth and a power. And so Nan Gray and the Invisible Man's Revenge, uh, uh, the Invisible uh, Man's Return, I lie, in uh, 1940, comes out with something that is really touching and real. Plus you uh, have um, a a subplot, which is rather good, and you have a very uh, unusual scientist who's both detached and also really uh, good, but is a complex, to use that overused word, and in this case it works, a complex character, and then you also give it a little budget with tremendous, uh, wonderful effects outside, and so you continue the central conceit, but you broaden it, and you make the male-female relationship central as opposed to secondary. And so in each of these cases, you've taken an original idea, and you broaden it and deepened it. Now let's think about Christianity, and let's think about preaching for just a second. What uh, I always tell people who are trying to preach uh, is that this is not about writing a talk. This is not about a talk that you write on a Saturday afternoon, which you're going to, uh, you know, in a talk based upon what you've read in the newspaper and what you've seen on the television and what's in the text from the Bible. It is really an archaeological um, digging out of your own heart in connection with the deepest insights of the faith that you have come to believe is helpful to the problem of human suffering, sorrow, and loss and sin and evil and malice and jealousy and competitiveness and self-assertion and ego. And you, what you're doing is you're not giving a little talk about a passage in a written text. You are, you have that text, which you believe because you are in a sequel, a long series of sequels that have apparently had effect like John Wesley and Martin Luther and George Whitfield, and, um, you know, you name any number of people who's Dietrich Bonhoeffer and go way, way, way back, uh, you know, Christoph Blumhardt and so forth. You, um, you 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 know you have the confidence that the possibility of a good sequel is there but it can only really be a good sequel if you're if you add your your je ne sais quoi your person to it so you you like indiana jones in the um Temple of Doom, you, 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 you rip out your heart like the Aztecs and hold it up yourself before the sunlight of the great word of God's grace in the New Testament and in the scripture. It's in the Old Testament too. Uh, and, you know, da, da, da. And uh, you hold that up and the connection of the heart that's been really uh, archaeologically excavated in your own life becomes acquainted with that sun which creates sun and water, which creates photosynthesis. And so the sermon is a form of photosynthesis, the result of which is a new plant and a green and beautiful uh, flower. And that's what preaching is. Now, what this means is it's a sequel. So you can guarantee, because as I said, the market never lies, dogs never lie, and your body never lies. You can therefore... (coughs) 
extrapolate from that that if the fortunes of the Christian church, irrespective of other cultural uh, things going around them, but if the ability of the Christian church to not be a resurgent and a powerful voice to at least sufferers who will always look anywhere and everywhere for a lasting relief to their swath, you know, to their hunger, uh, if, it's, if it's failing, if you go to churches where no one's coming, that is the body never lies. And that means that somehow the preaching or the the way the message has been put together in the current sequel from 2012 is not well done. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a commercial um, attempt to play on some old success in hopes of garnering some new success, but it fails. I mean. Um, they stopped making sequels to these great Frankenstein movies of Universal Studios. Among many things, is they didn't make as much money as they had. These movies allowed Universal Studios to survive during the Depression because people loved these movies, and that they went to them even when they had no money. They'd, they'd pay two bits or whatever it was to go to these movies when they were good, and that is why they kept being made. But when they no longer had that kind of um, appeal... They were shut down until a new form of sequels came, which was not that much later in the late 50s with the Hammer Horror, which took the same ideas and the same great ideas and simply sexed them up with lurid technicolor uh, and um, uh, décolleté, which décolletage, which uh, created this tremendous rebirth of the old archetype in the 50s and 60s. And the same is true at all times. The great message of the Christianity, which is God's love for sinners, neither do I condemn thee. It's not God's love for sinners and yet. It is God's love for sinners full stop and then let everything take care of itself. Woman, neither do I condemn thee. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, not the righteous. He did not come to save the righteous. He came to seek and save the lost. That is always that great archetype, just like the, in its own powerful way, that the original archetypal message of Frankenstein, Dracula, the mummy, and the invisible man, and the wolf man, who has not been a wolf man in his life or her life, primarily his life. Uh, these are all um, important because they say that the archetype keeps returning. <clears throat> there are many later mummy movies. There are mummy movies made all over the world, and they're still being made, God, thank God. Uh, Dracula continues to return again and again and again. What was the most recent Hammer Horror film, 2010, called Let Me In, that my friend Bill Bowman so lovingly um, gave me recently? That's a Hammer Horror film. And uh, whatever modern somewhat dark and cruel um, sub-themes were placed into it. It's capitalizing on a very ancient metaphor about inherited vampirism, which we all know about today is everywhere. It's everywhere. Twilight of the Gods. Now, um, that is where preaching has to take its cue. You have this great gospel, and it has one word, honesty slash repentance and forgiveness. That is the beginning of regeneration, as Bishop Bell said. That is the gospel. But in each person, it has to be connected with the most widest and deepest possible archaeology. And 
That is why if you follow the rules of the Hollywood sequel, Invisible Man Returns, The Mummy's Hand, Son of Dracula, and Bride of Frankenstein, you will, in fact, because you will deepen, broaden, and make it your own, your sequel, even in your own personal life, and I could talk about this about second marriages and new chapters in your relationships with your children, but I don't have the time at this point. I'll do that another day. If you could bear that in mind and actually make the message of these great sequels your own, you would be actually in a position to qualify as the inspired sequel writer, director, and actor of the universal cosmic series of the current age. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless.